welcome back to Russian Roulette, the podcast from the Europe, Russia, and Eurasian program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm your host, Heather Conley. In this episode of Russian Roulette, I sit down with Hannah Alberts, analyst with the U.S. European Command based in the United Kingdom, and Jade McGlynn, researcher and lecturer at the University of Oxford. They were both participants in CSIS's Understanding the Russia Military Today. It was a five-day professional development program that explored the elements of Russian military power, including its composition and prospects, social and historical foundations, doctrine, and current operations. And as part of our final exercise, participants were asked to develop short independent research papers that explored one of four major themes, Russian society, strategy, and history, elements of Russian military power, recent uses of Russian military power, and resources behind Russian military power. The papers today really focused on Russian history and that's use and, and how it was instrumentalized both at home and abroad to serve a political and as well as a military purpose. So let's get started. Welcome back. I am joined today by Jade McGlynn, a researcher and lecturer at the University of Oxford, who wrote Constructing Memory Alliances, How Russia Uses History to Bolster Its Influence and Undermine Rivals Abroad. And with us is Hannah Alberts, an analyst with the U.S. European Command based in the United Kingdom and author of the paper, The Militarization of Russian Youth. Jade, Hannah, welcome to the show. We're so grateful that you're here. And you wrote two amazing essays that we are featuring um, in our uh, new compendium. And so I want to start with you, Jade. It was a great paper that looks at the, these are my words, the weaponization of history. And, and you offer a fantastic argument about the securitization of, of history, that Moscow was using this, particularly as uh, Vladimir Putin returned to the Kremlin uh, for his third presidential term, his use of memory. So let me start with you. Help us, uh, help us with some terms here. What is a memory alliance? And then I want to talk a little bit about why you selected Serbia as a really a vibrant example of Russia's use of memory alliance. Mm -hmm. um, well, firstly, thank you so much uh, for inviting me to take part in the podcast and, and indeed for including uh, my paper in the compendium. It's really um, such a privilege. So it, to answer your first question in terms of memory alliances, how can we define them? What do I mean by this term? I understand it as an effort by the Kremlin to create informal or more formal associations with either target nations or with select parts of the target nation's populations. And these associations um, are formed on the basis of a shared narrative of the past. So in the example of Serbia, Russia often tries to curry favour to bolster its influence there by using public diplomacy, its media uh, station there in particular, uh, the Sputnik portal, to remind Serbians that uh, Russia supports its view or popular views of the 1990s wars, uh, which often are quite different interpretation to those popularly held in the West, and also to remind Serbians, for example, of Russia's role in liberating parts of Yugoslavia, um, including uh, the north of Serbia during World War II, as a way of creating a favourable historical image of, of Russia um, in this country. 
And Russia and Serbia have sort of a long history of alliance, um, stretching back, you know, sort of over over the centuries and um, going into sort of more detail than than I than I possibly could hear. However, this is still reflected in the um, very high ratings um, that Vladimir Putin personally, um, and also Sergei Lavrov, the um, Minister of Foreign Affairs and also Russia um, have that are consistently shown sort of by by Gallup polls um, in Serbia. Um, So they already have a sort of a soft power base upon which to build. But I would say that in particular, Russia targets those countries where maybe their view of certain historical events is at odds, shall we say, if we just call it sort of a, a popular sort of European, mainly European Union view of events. And so they sort of find an in, as it were, to exploit um, a memory that might be perceived in some quarters as, as marginalised. And of course, it might be marginalised for very good reasons, for example, because it's not very true, or even is in some cases a form of, of denialism of some, some quite um, terrible crimes. And Russia sort of exploits that and say, okay, well, perhaps they don't listen to you, they don't listen to your memory, but but we do, and we believe you, and, and we share this. And it's a sort of a way of creating and bolstering its influence and creating alliances in, in those countries. You also see it sort of with elements of nostalgia or uh, nostalgia for, for East Germany um, in, in the East, in those parts of Germany that, that used to belong to the DDR. Jade, I want to sort of unpack a little bit, because this is so much part of Russia, in many ways, restoring its own sense of identity um, after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And what it's so interesting, you mentioned uh, Sputnik, one of their main uh, media channels. We just had the, the announcement of the Russian COVID-19 vaccine, Sputnik 5. So lots of historical memory, mm-hmm. uh, even in current uh, achievements. But for me, this focuses a lot on, uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, Russia's compatriot policy and the use of its the, the non-governmental organizational uh, stream of a Ruski Mir, that this was all about instilling patriotism and pride, pride in the accomplishments of certainly Soviet uh, history. But it seems to me these memory alliances, and, and Serbia is has a little bit of a twist on this, but memory alliances really focus on the Soviet Union's uh, historical role in World War II as a liberator. And certainly this year, the 75th anniversary of the end uh, of the Second World War was a real penultimate understanding of, of that role. So what we find is, you know, Russia's very focused on those World War II memories and that liberation memory, which is why there's such a a challenge when a country tries to dislodge a a statue that's in honor of the the Soviet uh, liberation forces, whether that's in Estonia or most recently in in the Czech Republic. So, and as you mentioned, sometimes this is not just glorifying uh, the Soviet Union's role in the World War II, it's rewriting history and even Vladimir Putin rethinking the Molotov Ribbentrop Pact, uh, the, the the pact between Nazi Germany uh, and Stalin Soviet Union to divide Poland. Help us understand why it is so fixated on that liberation element it, to create these memory alliances with those countries that it liberated. Sure. So I, um, yeah, I completely agree. Um, essentially, I think it can in some ways be very useful to understand memory alliances actually as a sort of export of many of the domestic policies that have been in place 
since Vladimir Putin came to power, but really accelerated after 2012 and the so-called sort of conservative turn uh, following the mass protests that sort of greeted his his re-election and, and the 2011 elections and that sort of left him needing to find or shore up his political legitimacy. And he very much shored up this political legitimacy by turning to history and using this as a sort of base of patriotism and the idea that um, there was a war on Russia um, and on Russian history in particular. Since 2012, the Russian government has invested you know, very heavily in promoting history as the unifying feature of Russian identity. Uh, numerous speeches um, by Vladimir Putin and by Vladimir Medinsky, the, well, between 2012 to 2019, the head of the, uh, the Minister for Culture, and essentially the man who has actually delivered many of the initiatives that have tried to bring history back to life, as it were, for young people, but also just in popular culture. So contributing, you know, to hundreds of films um, around World War II, many of which have been exported around the world and shown at Rosotrudnictvo offices. So Rosotrudnictvo is like the sort of cultural body um, of Russia abroad, so outside of the Russian Federation. So these things that are happening at home are being exported abroad. And very much there's been a tendency since 2012, and in fact, I wrote my PhD on this, um, on how sort of Russians, the Russian government, and then in turn, state-aligned media presented those who disagreed with their view of history as, as traitors, as, as foreign agents. And they almost turned history in, essentially into a geopolitical struggle, uh, militarizing memory and including sort of um, historical falsification as in the military, um, within the information warfare doctrine. Um, just recently, we heard that there were the um, investigative committee was creating a new division uh, to deal with historical falsification from abroad. And of course, on the 1st of September, Vladimir Putin compared speaking to a room of very young school children, somewhat inappropriately, it described how we all know who collaborators were during war times. And today, those same collaborators are still with us um, and they are those who rewrite history and by that he just means denies the very specific incredibly selective and somewhat eccentric narrative of Russian history very focused around World War II that is promoted by his government and so-called government organized NGOs so they they look like NGOs but they're very much organized funded um, and directed by the government. Hannah, I want to turn to you, but speaking of bringing history back to life, um, your paper focused on uh, the Russian government's renewed efforts to foster patriotic upbringing. So again, the, the creation of the Ministry of Defense's policy of the All-Russia Young Army National Military Patriotic Social Movement Association, that is a mouthful. Uh, so the Youth Army, uh, Unarmia, uh, is what it is called. But this is absolutely, I feel like I'm back to the Soviet future with, you know, the young pioneers, uh, the young, young people and the Soviet Union. But instead of wearing those iconic red scarves, today's youth army wears red berets. I'd love for you to sort of walk us through um, bringing this particular historical memory. Again, as, as Jade said, it's a, it's a unifying theme. It provides legitimacy. It's patriotism. Help us understand how the how the Kremlin envisions this youth army. Is it just for conscri you know getting the Russian military something it struggled with conscriptions, or is this something deeper about the next generation? Are we are they fostering military militarism in their young people? Thank you, Heather. Thanks so much. And and first again, let me just thank you for inviting me to participate. I'm really thrilled to be in such great company 
and have the chance to discuss these really fascinating topics with you. And before I jump into it, I'll just uh, throw out a quick disclaimer. And let me just say that my views are, are mine alone on this podcast. They don't represent the views of the U.S. Department of Defense or the U.S. government. It's really sort of independent research, and, and I'll be speaking in a, in a personal capacity. Yeah, to answer your question, I do think, I mean, it's a little bit of A and B, but it's a much broader phenomenon than just managing recruitment and manning issues within the military. My intent in writing this commentary was really to try and communicate to Western audiences and particularly analysts and policymakers that that we would do well to understand the societal and cultural factors that undergird Russia's position on the world stage and contribute to its military strength. So Specifically, this this idea of state efforts to foster patriotism through a policy, a a larger umbrella of of what's referred to by the Russian government as military patriotic upbringing, as you said. And this is really a broad set of state policies that certainly the the UNARMIA is one example of. But they're, you know, across the government, it's really a whole of government effort involving many different government departments and non-government entities to bring to realization this concept of military patriotic upbringing. And I really, I'd I'd like to agree with something Jade pointed out, which is this idea that the promotion of patriotism um, is, well, it's certainly not a new phenomenon in Russia and features broadly in its czarist and, and Soviet past. You do really see it pick up in the early 2000s and then especially become, you know, increasingly organized and codified during uh, President Putin's third term. So when when we're speaking about this policy of military patriotic upbringing, this has been um, something that has been adopted in a series of sort of five-year state programs over time, beginning in the early 2000s and extending to now, that really sort of set into place the core concepts that the Russian government is trying to achieve with these programs. And I think one really interesting thing, um, and what I wanted to highlight in the paper, is some of the recent developments around this phenomenon. So as you're aware, there were uh, amendments to the Russian Constitution passed earlier this year. And and one of the stipulations in those amendments had specifically to do with the responsibility of the state to engage actively in, in a certain kind of upbringing of its, of its youth and of its population. And, and one specifically that builds in these concepts of fostering patriotism. And then shortly thereafter, in, in July, in conjunction with the constitutional amendments, the Russian government passed a set of amendments to their law on education, which really bring it into line with these constitutional amendments and center this concept of upbringing within the law on education. And I think it's a really interesting concept because you see translations happen both ways with this um, military patriotic upbringing at times is translated as military patriotic education from the Russian. But really upbringing is is, is sort of a better term for it in a lot of ways because um, it really uh, upbringing has this sort of moral and social dimension that's generally absent from the broader term for education. So it's not really about a process of acquiring a knowledge or skills, but of of essentially bringing young people into a set of moral values and norms that sort of bring them into society. And this gets to the idea really of of militarization of the youth, which is the central idea of the paper, is that as as a means to mobilize and foster patriotism within the youth, the sort of use of, of military history and military narratives and the organizational structures around youth military clubs are clearly perceived by the Russian state as, a, as an effective means to achieve this broader policy. Hannah, thank you so much. In reading your paper and reflecting on, I think it was a New York Times article in 2018 that was actually describing 
one of the the, the camps uh, having you know uh, the military is cool having them scramble over tanks and and really sort of celebrate the the militarization of that for me the question and you pointed out in the paper with really surprising survey work of how in fact the Russian military is most trusted. And certainly, you know, the, the Russian military has gone through an, an incredible evolution at the collapse. You know, it was really struggling. It's now gone through a, a major modernization, a celebration, if you will, as part of that patriotism. How do you think the youth army, will it be helpful to recruitment and continue to instill the trust and in some ways shoring up the legitimacy of both the state and, of course, of, of Vladimir Putin? That's a great question. And I think that's that's actually one of the most challenging aspects of, of this kind of analysis is how do you evaluate success and what, what metrics can you use to understand not only independently as an analyst, whether or not those, these Kremlin policies are, are succeeding in their objectives, but also how does the Kremlin understand its own success? And I think there are a lot of, there are different metrics put forth actually in these state programs on military patriotic upbringing that the state publishes, which tell you a bit about how, how they intend to measure their own success. But really the, the key items it seems that they're focusing on would be increases in the number of people that are called to serve in the armed forces and also an assessment uh, or polling on, on the number of Russians who report um, themselves to be proud of their country. And so those are specific uh, metrics that are enumerated in these state policies um, alongside others. And I think Specifically, it, it's difficult in terms of drawing cause and effect between understanding whether programs like UNARMIA are indeed what contribute to trends in polling, but a logical inference would tell you they, they must contribute in at least some way. And certainly the level of investment that the Russian state has been willing to uh, to put into these programs, UNARMIA is just one of them. As I said, there are um, many, many other programs, uh, both run and organized by the Ministry of Defense, but also um, by other elements of the Russian government. But the, the the level of investment would tell you that the Kremlin has deemed that these programs either are or will be in the future um, effective in achieving strategic level goals. Some of the polling is, is really quite interesting. So what you pointed out, the idea of the military being one of the most trusted institutions is really fascinating. And there's a Lovata Center poll released in, in 2019 that really hits home with this point. And Essentially, it indicates that um, as of June 2019, that a 60% of Russians believe that generally, quote unquote, every real man should serve in the armed forces. And another 24% acknowledge that military service is essentially a necessary debt owed to the government. And the trend in this data, Lovada has asked this question in, in numerous polls over the years since at least 1997. And this poll released in 2019 was a record high for these numbers um, and far re exceeded really any of the previous Lovato polls on this same question um, and indeed marked an 18 percentage point increase in that in that metric since just 2015. In terms of the level of trust in the military, um, this has been borne out for a long time. It's a continuation of a trend that the three top trusted institutions in, in Russia include the military and the security services broadly, and then the, the presidency. And one thing that's really interesting to me, and I, I really wish there was more robust polling on, is that this trend holds not only among the general population, but also among young people. 
So there's limited polling that breaks it out demographically or is easily publicly available that sort of breaks down generational trends in these patterns. But there is some polling to suggest that among young people, the exact same trends hold with the military being among the top three trusted institutions by young Russians. Well, some could argue that, in fact, is uh, a metric of success, that it is helping to do exactly that, instill that that patriotism and, and trust and legitimacy. Jade, I want to turn back to you because, to me, what's so interesting, actually, in both of your, your papers, both elements of your papers have been recently codified, as you both mentioned, in uh, the recent changes to the Russian constitution. So it is now a crime to disparage Russia's role in the Second World War. It's a requirement to protect historic truths. And I think I think you have to understand that the definition of truth is under question. Um, forbid belittling the people's heroic protection of the motherland. And, and so we really now have this as, as you both said, what started in the early 2000s as it was there, very nascent, has really accelerated over the last four or five years. It has just been putting these practices, enshrining them into law, the investigative committees. This is serious now. This is actually uh, something that they're focusing on. And so I'm wondering, Jade, if you can walk us through a little bit, because the Serbia case study that you mentioned, we're about to have a big uh, demonstration next month in Belgrade when President Putin travels to Serbia to honor and recognize the liberation of Belgrade in the Second World War. And again, this is an incredible vision of this view of the Soviet Union slash Russia as a liberator. Walk us through what you anticipate that. And then there's also a little bit of a twist to that. President Putin is traveling to Belgrade because he is um, honoring the construction of the St. Slava Serbska Cathedral, this amazing Orthodox structure. So there's Orthodox, the faith in there, as well as the liberation. Help us walk us through that and what you were seeing in your case study. Actually, just to come back to something that that Hannah was talking about, it reminded me so much of the public appetite for some of these initiatives. Um, It reminded me of Sean Walker, the journalist, did an interview of Alexander Dugan, where I think he summarized it quite well. He said, well, you can't say that this World War II cult was imposed from above on the people, but you can't quite say it was a grassroots movement either. And I think it sums up the ambiguity of just trying to work out, tease out who wants what and sort of who's leading what. But um, to answer your question, so um, it's quite obviously not on the, necessarily on the level of, of Vladimir Putin. And I imagine this will be um, quite the memory sh- shebang of coming up uh, to mark the uh, the, li- the liberation um, by of, of Belgrade by, by the, US, the Red Army. Um, but it's very frequent um, that during these sorts of commemorative dates um, that Sergei Lavrov in particular um, will visit Serbia. Um, he'll often sort of take sort of a tour around the relevant monuments, sort of signing different books. So for example, earlier this year, he um, visited uh, Serbia for just two days and in that time managed to pack in, I believe, um, nine different um, events, uh, seven of which related, uh, nine different events relating to memory, seven of which related um, in some way to World War II or drawing attention to the uh, Red Army's liberation of Belgrade or to, you know, the sort of partisan movement and the sort of homegrown uh, liberators who, of course, contributed to that. So um, I think there will be an enormous amount 
amount of photo opportunities. Of course, given the recent tensions with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs following Maria Saharova's not not very polite jokes around Vucic's uh, treatment um, or Vucic's recent visit uh, to to the USA, um, which he interpreted in in, in a certain way, there have been quite apologetic noises coming out of the Kremlin towards Serbia. So I imagine um, as well um, that... um, I imagine we're just looking to get quite a lot out of this trip in terms of, you know, a lot of support, a lot of great opportunities. So perhaps that might change the dynamics um, somewhat um, of the visit, but it will be, it'd be interesting to watch. I'll be looking at it quite closely, but it's very um, fair to say that on this sort of more uh, traditional diplomatic level, um, as opposed to perhaps the media um, and Sputnik's dissemination of different memory alliance narratives, the traditional diplomatic actors do tend to focus much, much more on um, World War II and around these narratives um, and so thinking about just some recent examples and again going back to this idea of, of sort of exports of memory tactics uh, Dmitry Medvedev when he was still Prime Minister um, I think um, in early 2019 went to launch the Dorogi Pabirdi um, initiative which is essentially tours around the different sites um, that the different sites of sort of Red Army battlefields um, in um, Serbia and the idea is that young people tour these different sites um, and sort of learn about the Russia, of course, Soviet Union's input in, into um, Serbian history and into World War II in particular and, and the liberation. And this is actually um, a measure that was started in, in 2015 in, in Russia and involves sort of school children going around on a bus to various sort of military sites, uh, sort of sites of military history where they learn. So it's interesting to see that exported and interesting also that somebody as high profile as Dmitry Medvedev went out to open um, this initiative personally. I think it shows whilst it's difficult to measure the success of these things, um, particularly in terms of the exports sometimes, I think it definitely at least shows the importance and significance that is attached to them, that um, they should be sending out sort of at that time the Prime Minister to open what is essentially sort of a youth initiative of a not especially large scale at that time. Jade, it's fascinating that, you know, Lavrov is no longer conducting foreign policy, but history Mm -hmm. policy in some ways. That's very powerful. I loved your uh, memory shebang. That was fantastic. (laughs) I have one last question for you. And I just want to draw this out uh, because you noted in your paper, and I think it's fascinating because in some ways it can be the metastasization of memory alliances. And that is around the St. George ribbons. Mm -hmm. So this has become a real symbol for Russia's uh, history, memory history. You wear the St. George's Medal. Uh, We've seen these uh, a variety of contexts in Serbia, but it also can migrate into the UK where people Mm -hmm. are celebrating the heroism uh, of of the British people in the Second uh, World War. And they don't quite understand where some of this, with the wearing of the St. George's Medal, is actually something that Russia is incorporating. I'd welcome your thoughts on that. And then I want to turn to Hannah for one final question. Yeah, this was a really interesting um, example that came up. So this was um, when Jeremy Corbyn was still the the leader of the Labour Party. It happened that the members of the Momentum Group, which were essentially, which was essentially sort of party within a party set up to support Corbyn's Corbyn's movement, were wearing the ribbons, sort of tweeting images of the ribbons, very militaristic images of the ribbons as well, sort of draped around around a gun. Uh, one of the images had, and this was in sort of early 2019, and they were wearing the ribbons as signs 
signs of sort of their the anti-fascism that you know was important um, to their values and, and to their movement. But this inevitably led to disagreement within even within Momentum itself because people explained, well, okay. At, this is um, used in Russia as a commemorative ribbon, but it's very much an invented tradition. Although the St. George ribbon has a long tradition of use in the military, its current purpose was essentially invented as a sort of PR movement in the early 2000s, and it just really took off. And of course, since then, it's taken on very new meanings, particularly in the light of the war in East Ukraine, where it was worn very heavily in 2014 um, by separatists and of course the the russian soldiers uh, who were supporting them and by people back in russia to show their sort of dislike of the maidan uh, protests and their support for for the um for the east ukrainian uh, separatists um the donetsk and luhansk people's republics um so it's definitely not a simple case of just okay this is a commemorative symbol so it was interesting to see that it emerged on the um, perhaps far left isn't necessarily the right term, but certainly the sort of the, the populist, um, perhaps slightly more populist left, um, especially in light of, of course, Jeremy Corbyn's own very problematic sort of views on 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 Russia and and also of course the the Crimean annexation, which he had a very idiosyncratic for Britain view. Thanks so much, Jay. I just find it fascinating that these trends can move into other spheres, and it really speaks to the need for education of understanding how they're used and, and you know, keeping the intent of them to be positive, but understanding how they're being increasingly weaponized. Just also meant, wanted to add, because I forgot to say that um, the... Russian embassy each year um, in Britain and in, in, I think um, in over well over 125 countries that was what was advertised on their website recently actually has sort of acts or, or um, sort of uh, movements where they go and they uh, send staff to hand out St. George's ribbons um, in the countries of the embassies um, and they this happens sort of around the time sort of approaching Victory Day every year um, and so they really actively try to promote so it's very it's it seems unlikely that um the momentum group sort of who were wearing or who adopted the momentum groups who adopted this ribbon um, just picked it up randomly. It seems very likely that it would have been part of this broader um, effort that by Russia's embassies around the world to really promote the St. George's ribbon and their ways of remembering the war around this time. Thank you for adding that. It is really fascinating. And it's both, uh, you know, for, for individuals that may not know this, it's very unwitting, but for those who understand it's, it's extremely powerful. And what always you know, again, this sort of this whole memory alliance, it sort of boils down. You saw this in the Serbia case. You are either a fascist and they will link you back to the fascism of the 20th century or you are a supporter of uh, the Kremlin's uh, view of the historic truth. And, and there's, there's no it's just black and white that you yeah. it's an either or and it makes it simple. But of course, it's not simple. No, the great patriotic war can never end, it seems. It, and you know what? It, it, and that's in some ways when you are living in the past, you cannot embrace the future. Uh, and I think that's that's in some ways the tragedy of taking uh, indeed great heroism. Uh, I think we do honor the extraordinary sacrifice of the Soviet mm -hmm. Union, but you can't move to the future if you are just mired in the past. Hannah, what struck me as Jade was talking, I, there is a real youth element even to the historical memory of taking tours 
wars, through the the Red Army's liberation battles, through through Serbia. But I wanted to sort of bring this back to contemporary. You know, so much in the press and a lot of the analytical literature that we're working on, that so many analysts are working on, is understanding sort of the Russian regular army, the military and their modernization, and increasingly the Kremlin's prevalent use of contractors, the Wagner group, of course, being the the most blatant example of of that use. And so in your paper, you had sort of quoted a colleague, or perhaps I was reading some other materials in preparation for this conversation, you know, that talked about the inspiring military patriotism and serving one's country, and then being a paid contractor, you get extra money to then go serve in a mission that may not be in support of defending your country. It just is a tool for the for the government's uh, statecraft. How do you sort of square those circles or jibe those two, instilling patriotism and paying mercenaries to go do far afield adventures that uh, obviously the, these individuals may not come back and the state does not acknowledge that they work for the state in any way? How do you wrestle with that? Thanks, Heather. Yeah, that's a, a really fascinating conundrum. And I think you know, it, it's it's quite interesting to see as Russia's policy of using par- private military contractors to achieve its goals abroad has sort of um, shaped up and, and evolved over time. The degree to which Russia really has succeeded, I think, domestically in drawing a line between these two things and drawing a line between what it uses Russian regular uh, service members to achieve and its promotion of of pride in those actions. And it's sort of keeping quiet of to some degree and not directly promoting or in fact often denying the actions of mercenaries essentially serving both commercial and and Russian state interests abroad. I think, you know, it's really interesting, particularly given the amount of investigative reporting that's been done on this, that there's certainly a wealth of evidence broadly available that that journalists have brought to light to make clear that often these efforts of mercenaries abroad are indeed funded and serve the interests of the Russian state. But it's, it's really interesting that despite that, Russia doesn't really attempt to square that circle, right? It seems comfortable and confident in keeping those sets of activities in two separate bins and painting them with two separate kinds of, of narratives. And as far as I can tell, and you know, I would love to see um, some more sort of in-depth research and, and thinking on this, but as far as I can tell, they've, they've been relatively successful domestically in differentiating those two categories and in fostering pride in in the sorts of efforts abroad and Russia's display of military capability, say, in, in Syria, and, you know, keeping rather quiet the activities of, of Russian private military uh, contractors in, say, Libya or throughout the rest of Africa. So I, I think that is indeed an interesting contrast between those two. But I think Russia has, has done a relatively good job of understanding that people to some degree are willing to accept contradictions and to hold two different ideas in their head at the same time. So I, th- I think the fact of uh, mercenaries being paid abroad to, you know, serve both the interests of the Russian state and indeed dictatorial regimes worldwide doesn't come into too much conflict, honestly, with Russia's efforts to promote patriotism and the heroism of its of its service members at home. It's an amazing contradiction, and it is amazing that it can work in, in parallel. 
Jade and Hannah, thank you so much. This has been a fantastic conversation. I think we have really brought history back to life ourselves here today. <laughs> and But talking about how it is applied to modern statecraft, to foreign and security policy, I, I think for me, uh, the lessons of really thinking about uh, weaponizing history and how it's used both to shore up legitimacy domestically, but also to further foreign policy goals. It has been an amazing conversation. You both provided amazing contributions to our, our executive education program, which you both were fantastic participants, as well as your, uh, your essay and your independent research based on that conversation. We're grateful for your efforts. We wish you the best of luck as you continue to do your important research. And again, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much, Heather, and, and thank you for excellent moderation and, and drawing the parallels between these two papers. I think it's amazing to see how history can be used as a tool both domestically and to achieve foreign policy objectives. I'm constantly fascinated by what you can get by marshalling history. It's quite fascinating. Thank you. That's it for our show today. We'll provide a link to all the guest papers in the show notes. You can follow Jade McGlynn at jademcglynn122. And for those of you who aren't already, please consider subscribing to the podcast on iTunes and leaving us a rating and review as well. We love your feedback. If you're not an iTunes user, check out the podcast and subscribe via Google Play. And again, keep spreading the word about Russian roulette. Follow our program on Twitter at CSIS Russia and at CSIS Europe. Again, let me thank everyone who worked so hard to make this podcast happen. Of course, our fantastic CSIS External Relations and iLab team, but very special thanks to Roxana Gabudulina, who always keeps this podcast running. Stay healthy and well, everyone. We'll see you next time. 